He is holy. Amen? Gosh. Man, I love worshiping with you guys. Um, well, good morning. My name is Brett Jensen, and I have the privilege of uh, teaching the passage again this morning. If you were here last week, I was also here last week, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to present God's word this morning. My prayer, again, for you is to be challenged in your faith as we learn more about our amazing God together and his purpose for our lives. So when I was in high school, things were a little bit different. Uh, first off, cell phones, they weren't a thing. Uh, like, it just didn't exist. Um, the internet was, like, like, obnoxiously slow. It was, like, brand new. It was either, like, dial-up, like you had to tie up your phone line, or, like, the new one was called DSL, where when you clicked the web page, you watched it load over time. Okay? And then computers, in addition to that, were like large, like, like really, really big and like, like heavy. And then like, it wasn't just like one like single small thing. It was like the monitor and then like all like, like 17 cables. And like you had to have all these different, it was just a different time. And I grew up in that time and I had uh, other friends that were like me in high school that loved playing video games. And the ultimate of any video game thing was this concept called the LAN party. In order to do a LAN party, what you had to do is you had to everyone bring their home computer over to someone's house. And then you had to connect them all and join together in a local area network where you get the word LAN. And then you could play computer video games together. And this, this was like the dream to us. And so one Saturday night, we decided we're going to have a LAN party. So we decided we're going to go to my buddy's house and everyone's going to bring their computer so we set the date, and then I go to mom and dad, and I go, hey, mom, dad, you know we have one family computer? Like, I'm going to need that Saturday night. And they kind of look at me, and reluctantly, after I convince them, they agree. So the big night comes. I, I take my computer. I get all the cables. I unplug, like, 17 cables. I load it all up in my car. I drive over to my friend's house. I get there, and we start setting it up. And then my best friend, Raider, walks in after work, comes on in, and we go, hey, man, do you need help, like, getting your computer out of your car? And he goes, don't have my computer. And we go, what do you mean you don't have your computer? Dude, it's a LAN party. Like, we're super excited. We can't wait. And he goes, I don't have it. We, but he goes, but don't worry. I got a task for us. I got a mission for us. And we all go, well, we're in, man. Like, whatever you need, we got it. And he said, so what, what we got to do is we got to go to my house and we got to go get it. And we said, all right, no problem. He goes, but we can't wake up anybody when we're there. And we go, all right, like, cool, man. So we head over there. At 11 p.m., and we roll into the neighborhood, and we go, okay, so what's the plan? He begins to explain, he's like, well, we can't go through the front door, that'll be too loud. No problem. Hey, let's use the side gate. We can't use the side gate, it squeaks again too loud. How are we going to get in, man? He goes, you see that block wall on the side there? We're going to hop that. Hop over the side wall, goes in through the window, and he begins unplugging all of his stuff for his computer. Then we build like a fireman line of dudes where like we start passing the computer from out of the window into the backyard, from the backyard over this like six foot block wall. I can't even see people on the other side of the wall. And we begin like doing like this trust exercise of like passing computer equipment over. Okay. At one point, the monitor was coming over and I, I, was, on the, I was on the receiving end catching a like 21 inch monitor, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but back then they were like 21 inches by like... 15 feet long, and they were like 200 pounds, you know, and so like, you're catching this thing, and it's like, he's like, hey, man, you got it? I'm like, I think I got it. I had like just one hand on it. He goes, all right, here it comes, and then he just like, and I see this monitor, oh, 
and I just barely catch it, like just barely. Could it have been a catastrophe? But I catch it, we load it all up, we go back to my buddy's house, and we set it up, and we play video games from midnight till 6 a.m. Glorious, glorious night. We had a task, we had a mission, and we completed it. Have any of you guys ever been assigned a task before? Maybe not as important as getting a computer in the middle of the night, but have you ever had a task assigned to you before? Some sort of mission or, or a thing that you wanted to complete. Well, Peter did. You see, after following Jesus for three years, Jesus had specific instructions for Peter. See, Jesus was going to give Peter a very important task. And that task would last a lifetime. Let's turn to, uh, or let's open up to John 21. Uh, let's look at the verse up here. Verses 15 through 17. Here's Jesus and Peter's interaction. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, after Jesus was resurrected, he went to Peter and asked him this question three times. Peter, do you love me? And after Peter's denial, I spoke on this a little bit last week, Jesus is reaffirming the relationship. And he's rooting Peter's ministry in love. But then he gives Peter a task. Did you catch it? He said it three times. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is telling Peter, hey, this is your task. Pay attention and get to it. And at this point, Peter's commissioned. We then get to read about Peter living out his mission in the book of Acts. He has been commissioned by Jesus to feed his sheep. That is, Peter's going to share the gospel. He's going to give people an opportunity to respond. He's going to build churches and support them. And so when we pick up now in our study in 2 Peter, we know that this is the, near the end of Peter's ministry. And Peter is writing to believers with this goal of teaching and caring for God's sheep. Peter is working hard to see his job completed until he dies. So let's open up our Bibles this morning to 2 Peter. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 12 through 21. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, here's what it reads. Therefore, I intend to always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able, to be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But 
we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter begins uh, this passage by writing in verse 12, Therefore, I intend to always remind you of these qualities. Last week, I spoke on seven qualities that we, as believers, are to make every effort to add to your faith as we pursue our sanctification. And my hope last week, my prayer last week, is that you were challenged and that you will continue as we move forward to make every effort to pursue your sanctification. And then in verses 12 through 15, Peter now has this theme. Did you catch it? It's this theme of remember. He writes it three times. He says in verse 12, I'm going to remind you. Verse 13, by way of reminder. And then verse 15, so that you may recall. Peter knows he's being repetitive. That he doesn't apologize for being repetitive. No, he doubles down. You see, he defends his position of reminding believers by saying in verse 12, I know that you know them. I know that you know these truths. And I know that you're established in the truth. Peter's saying, I want you to know the gospel so well that when I'm not around, you may be able to recall it at any time. The gospel is something we need to know and establish in our hearts. We need to daily remind ourselves how we are forgiven. That we have a relationship with God where grace is offered freely. That we have a Savior, as I spoke on last week, that views us as his masterpiece. See, the gospel is something that we need to know. And somehow, we need to relearn on a daily basis. See, I love how Peter continues in verse 13. He says by saying, I think it is right to stir up your faith by way of reminder. See, Peter is not just reminding. Peter is stirring up the gospel. This idea of, of stirring up their faith reminded me of, of nachos, and specifically nacho cheese. I know if you've been with me, I speak on food a lot, okay? If you've ever made nacho cheese before, it's really, really simple. And if you haven't, like dudes, you can do this for like a Super Bowl party. All you do is you take the can of nacho cheese, you open it, you pour nacho cheese into crock pot, and then you plug in crock pot. Boom, did it. But the problem with nacho cheese is right before you serve it, you got to stir it up. Because if you don't stir up the nacho cheese before you serve it, the top layer of that nacho cheese dip becomes a little thick and crusty. It becomes kind of stale. And as the party goes on, you got to walk back over and you got to stir it up again. And Peter is saying this, I want to stir up your faith. I don't want your faith to become stale and crusty. I don't want you to be stagnant in following Jesus. I want to stir you up. I want to remind you of the gospel and of our pursuit of sanctification. 
Peter emphasizes this point again in 2 Peter chapter 3. So two chapters later, look what he says again. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing you. I wrote you 1 Peter, now the second letter, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder so that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is honestly something for me that every time I have the opportunity to preach, I want to stir up the gospel in your hearts. Last week I did it this way. I looked at the gospel through the lens of Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And this morning, here's how I want to do it. I want us to take four minutes of our time and I want us to watch a video about it. Let's watch. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told. God. Yes? God. The maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance. Seen and unseen. What can and can be touched. Thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans. God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept, so cold. It's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond. Creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job. An odd list of complaints. As if the system ain't working. And used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature... Your species, you participated in the mutiny, our, yes, our sins. It's nature inherited, black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it and how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding. Besides trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It'll need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet. The problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer, an asthma, choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection. But silly us, trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe. But all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection. Good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank. But you could give it a shot. 
But I suggest you throw away the list, because even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says as part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying. It's impossible. Sin brings death. Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is someone die in your place. And that someone got to be perfect or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness his death functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection, we all cheered because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone, I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in him and him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel. God, our sins, paying everyone life. Every time it gets to the spot where it talks about Jesus' perfection and his life that he gave for us, it moves me every time. And I love stirring up the gospel in my heart And this is what Peter's getting to. Peter's saying, I want to stir up the gospel in your heart so that you will always be able to remember, so that at any time you will be able to recall it. And then he continues in verse 14, he says, since I know the putting off my body will be soon. You see, Peter brings urgency to his message by letting the believers know this will likely be his final words to them. Peter knew that his death was coming soon. You see, in John 21, right after Jesus and Peter had that interaction that we looked at, okay, Jesus then tells Peter that he will die for his faith in verses 18 and 19. Jesus tells Peter that his hands will be stretched out and he will be carried to a place that he does not want to go. And tradition tells us that Peter died by crucifixion, but Peter did not view himself worthy to die as Jesus died, so he was crucified upside down. Peter knows that his death will be coming soon, and so he's urging believers, pay attention. These will very likely be my final words to you. I love how Peter refers to this in 14 as the putting off of my body. In some translations, it may read, the putting off of my tent. I'm sure some of you guys have gone camping in a tent before. Uh, I personally love going camping. It's something that I did as a kid uh, with my family. And now as an adult, I take my kids and we go camping. I love setting up the campsite. It's very, very fun. Hey, everyone's excited. You're rolling in. You're sitting up everything. And setting up the tent nowadays is like super easy. It's not those old school tents. It's just like extending poles. I can set up an eight-man tent in like three minutes. It's beautiful. 
And then we all go in there, and, and as the trip goes on, though, the tent that was all looking nice and wonderful and pretty as the time goes on, it starts to get a little bit dirtier. You know, my kids come in from the campsite, and they bring all their wonderful treasures into the tent that they find, right? And they go in and out, and over time, the tent gets dirtier. And then you wake up the next morning, and it's a little damp, and it starts to kind of sag or lean in a direction. And overall, by the end of the trip, the tent kind of gets beat up. But you know what? I look at it, and I'm never really too worried about it. Because I know, well, it's just a tent. You see, because at the end of the trip, we kind of sweep it out and pack it up and roll it up and put it away. And this is how Peter views his body. It's just a tent. Just a temporary holding place for his spirit. This is Peter's perspective. He knows that the putting off of his body will be soon, but he is more concerned about the tasks that Jesus gave him than he is about preserving his tent. Peter has this perspective that he knows he will soon be spending eternity with God. And so he is making the most of his final days. Notice, Peter doesn't pass the torch. He doesn't say, you know, I'm getting a little too old for this. I'm not going to keep reminding these truths. Peter doesn't retire and then just ride off into the sunset. No, Peter's mission focused. He's locked in. Some of you in this sanctuary, you're younger than me. Well done. Okay. Others of you in the sanctuary, you're older than me. That's how it works. For the older generation, I think there's an important lesson in Peter's life for you to consider. Here's what it is. Finish well. I would urge you, do not make the sunset years of your life about anything else other than God's mission and purpose. You see, in America, you can retire from your job. But nowhere in Scripture do I read that we ever retire from following Jesus. Finish well means investing your time, your resources, your wisdom into things and people that will make an eternal impact. Let me give you an example of finish well. I have never met Pastor Brian's grandpa. But the way that PB, Pastor Brian, see what I did there? Okay. The way that PB talks about him, it is so clear to me that his grandpa finished well. Brian's grandpa invested his time, wisdom, patience, and over many conversations and meals with Brian. And if you've been coming to this church long enough, you've heard about him, share about him so many times, you know, man, that is a man that finished well. And here's how Peter's finishing well. He's stirring up the gospel and believers. He's living the mission. Look at verse 15. He says, and I will make every effort so that at any time these believers may be able to recall these things. Just as Peter challenged us in verse 5 to make every effort to pursue our sanctification, he goes, you make every effort to do your side, and I'm going to make every effort to keep stirring up the gospel in your hearts. He's finishing well. And as we go to verse 16, Peter's about to make a transition. See, Peter has been called by Jesus to be a shepherd, to lead God's people. And so in chapter 1, that's what he's been doing. As we've been reading so far and studying this book, he's been teaching them doctrine. He's been recentering their focus. He's been explaining how they are justified and have all that they need for life and godliness and to pursue their sanctification. Peter has been feeding his sheep. 
And now as we transition, he's going to start fighting off the wolves. You see, false teachers have risen up in this early church. And they are trying to get these false teachers are trying to get these young Christians to question their faith and doubt the truth about who Jesus is. And Peter's going to spend some time explaining how to handle them in chapters 2 and 3. But he first begins to address these false teachers this way, by affirming the gospel is trustworthy. The gospel is trustworthy. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying, we didn't follow some clever myth or some scheme in teaching you about Jesus. What Peter and the apostles were teaching the church was not only the truth and power of who Jesus is, but they were teaching about Jesus' second coming. You see, the early church had no doubt that Jesus had come to earth. I mean, so many people probably witnessed him or knew someone that interacted with him. But Peter and the apostles were teaching Jesus is coming back. And you see, the attack from the false teachers was that Jesus was not coming back. We see this in 2 Peter uh, verses three, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 4. They will say, these false teachers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued or are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. False teachers are claiming this for this verse. They're saying, look, Jesus is gone. He's not coming back. So just go back to your normal lives. What are you wasting your time for? And Peter's going to remind the early church that not only did Jesus come to earth, oh, but he's indeed coming back. And Peter gives us two reasons here in our passage this morning. First, he tells the believers, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Jesus' majesty was on display. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter gives an eyewitness testimony of Jesus. He shares about a specific experience that he had with Jesus on this earth. I mean, he walked three years with Christ. Think about all the experiences that he could have shared. I mean, Peter could have shared about the time that he was on a boat with the other disciples and this like big storm came on and they were all freaking out and Jesus is napping and they wake him up and they're, ah, what are we going to do? And Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea. Peter could have shared how at one point Jesus was walking on water out to them on a boat. And Peter at one point stepped out of the boat and was walking on water too. Peter could have shared about the time when him and the disciples were together. This huge crowd was coming and they're hungry. And Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish and gives it to the disciples and says, go break it and give it to them. And they're probably breaking the bread looking back going like, that's a lot of people. Like maybe just the front row is going to get some. And it's multiplying and it's multiplying and thousands of people are fed. Peter could have shared about how Jesus taught with authority. 
He could have shared about how he resurrected Lazarus, how he shared about how he did many miracles, how he was raised from the dead. But Peter, Peter chooses to talk about one experience in particular. The one that Peter shares about is Jesus' transfiguration. Let's look at that experience. In your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 17. And we're going to look at Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. As you're turning there in Matthew 16, this is right before Matthew 17. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Six days later, Matthew 17 picks up. Look at Matthew 17 verses, uh, we're going to read verses 1 and 2 first. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes were white, became white as light. Six days later, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain. It's just the four of them up there. And Jesus was transfigured. That is, he was transformed in his appearance. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became radiant white. Like, don't just read it. Like, put yourself there. You're on this mountain. You're looking at Jesus. You're with your disciples. You're looking at Jesus. And all of a sudden, boom, his face so shone like the sun. Like, you've ever tried to look at the sun? It's like, ah, his clothes, radiant white. Can you imagine witnessing his majesty at that moment? It's not done, though. Look at verses 3 and 4. And he was transfigured before them. Sorry, verse 3. And behold, surprise, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here, you think? If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Moses and Elijah appear next to Jesus, and they begin talking with Jesus. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. You see, Jesus ushered in a new law and a new covenant. In Matthew 5, 17, here's what Jesus said to them. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. So he's talking with them and then Peter interrupts. Peter goes, God, it's good that we're here. Jesus, it's good that we're here. I want to keep the experience going. If you want, I'll make a tent for each of you guys. Peter doesn't get it. Luckily, God the Father interrupts him. Verse 5, let's look at verse 5. And he was still speaking when, behold, another surprise, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. God the Father comes in this bright cloud. 
and he affirms Jesus. This is the part in Peter that he, Peter's highlighting in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter's saying, I witnessed it. I saw the glory and honor given to him, both in the way his appearance changed, but also hearing God the Father affirm it. And remember, not only Peter was there, but James and John were there. See, John highlights this in his gospel. In John 1.14, look what he writes. He says, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He was living with us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You wonder what John was thinking about? (laughs) See, Jesus' glory on that mountain was only seen in part, just temporarily, and only by a few men. When Jesus returns, his glory will be witnessed by all. This is the account Peter gives. Peter said, we saw it. We know of his glory. We witnessed his majesty. And Peter's sharing about this mountaintop experience that Jesus is indeed coming back as promised. Man, what an incredible praise and hope we have in this. Notice Peter's evidence of Jesus' majesty isn't that his own life turned out to be really well. He didn't go to these people writing the letter and say, hey, Jesus was, his majesty was on display. Like, my life turned out awesome. Peter's evidence wasn't that he had some sort of internal heart change or something that could be subjectively justified. Peter and the apostles' evidence is they witnessed Jesus make claims about who he is, and then they watched Jesus back it up. The evidence Peter cites here in 2 Peter, is to demonstrate this point of the transfiguration. He shares with them, I was there with John and James. They didn't need to follow some cleverly devised myths. No, they witnessed it. You see, the transfiguration anticipates the second coming since it unveils the glory that will belong to Jesus at his coming. And our only choice is either to reject Peter's testimony and say Peter is a liar. Or we accept it and know that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. I choose to accept it. And for that reason, I am confident that what Jesus said he will do, he will indeed accomplish. Let's head back to our passage now in 2 Peter He's going to give us our second reason why the gospel is trustworthy. Let's look at verses uh, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. After sharing about that experience, he says, and, like as if that's not enough. That would have already been enough. He could have said, like, case closed. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We're only going to study through verse 19 today, but Brian's going to come back next week. And he's going to do a deeper dive into verses 20 and 21. He's going to be talking about the inspiration and trustworthiness of God's word. 
But as we look at verse 19, here's what Peter says. And we have something more sure. What is that? That prophecy is fulfilled and promised in Christ. See, the prophecy of Scripture found throughout the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. And the prophecy promises of his second coming. You see, there are prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. Things like where he would be born. Miracles that he would perform. And how he would die. And after Jesus was resurrected, he walked seven miles from Jerusalem to this town called Emmaus. And he explained to two dudes in Luke chapter 24 how he fulfilled all of those prophecies. Look what it says in Luke 24, 27. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them, those two guys, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Man, I wish I would have been at that conversation, huh? Jesus fulfilled many prophecies when he walked this earth. But there are also prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. Peter is referencing those prophecies here in 2 Peter 1.19. These prophecies tell us of a day of the Lord. That is, Jesus' second coming. See, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment and a day of salvation. A day when those who oppose God will be punished and those who love him will be delivered. This day of the Lord is prophesied in the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Malachi. In the New Testament, there are also references to the day of the Lord. Jesus walked this earth. He taught about his second coming and his final judgment. Then Jesus, after he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven. And at Peter's first sermon, right after Pentecost, right after they got the Holy Spirit, at Peter's first sermon, he makes reference to this day of the Lord. Jesus is coming back in Acts 2, 20 and 21. Look what Peter says. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter wrote about the second coming, this day of the Lord. Not just Peter, though. Listen, Paul wrote about it too. In Philippians 1, here's what Paul says. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. The day of Christ also being the day of the Lord. And so Peter, in verse 19, is talking about a day of the Lord, a time when the morning star will rise in your hearts. God's word comes to shine in our hearts when we are in darkness. Psalm 119, 105 says it this way, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We cannot understand it until it breaks through our hearts like a sunrise. Paul wrote it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He said, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God that shines on us in conversion will reach its completion at Jesus' second coming. I titled this sermon, Live the Mission. You see, Peter, Peter's task that he got from Jesus 
was so much more than a task. The task that, that, that Peter got from Jesus was really a charge. It was a, it was a mission statement for Peter's life. Peter is living out his mission statement. He knows what Jesus told him, and he is feeding the sheep. He's fighting the wolves. Peter is stirring up the gospel. He's encouraging believers in their pursuit of sanctification. He is spreading God's word. He's fighting against heresy and false teachers. Church, let's live the mission. Our church's mission statement is this. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples. Living the mission means we exist to glorify God by being a disciple. By worshiping God. By growing in our faith. By making every effort to pursue our sanctification, we are glorifying God by being a disciple. And we exist to glorify God by making disciples. By sharing the gospel message. By praying for those who do not know Christ. By investing your time with those who know Christ and who don't know Christ. In that way, we are living the mission. And until God returns or we put off this body, let us live the mission. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for sending your Son here to this earth. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to know you, to worship you. God, I thank you for, for guys like Peter. That when Jesus gave him a, a mission statement, that he responded obediently. God, that he stirred up the gospel because it is trustworthy. God, I pray that we here in this church, God, would we live the mission too? God, that we would realize that we exist to glorify you. God, teach us that. Grow our hearts. Lord, and we look forward to watching what you're gonna do. God, we are so grateful. We are so thankful. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.